From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, disentangling from Afghanistan. Late last month, the United States reached a framework agreement with the Taliban to end its 17-year war in Afghanistan. American officials say the Taliban has promised to prevent terror groups such as al-Qaeda from creating safe havens in Afghanistan. In exchange, the Taliban is demanding all foreign troops leave the country. During the State of the Union, President Trump said his aim is to change U.S. strategy there. As we make progress in these negotiations, we will be able to reduce our troops' presence and focus on counterterrorism, and we will indeed focus on counterterrorism. But is this the best option for ensuring stability in the region, and what will happen next? Today on the podcast, we're going to look back at why the United States got into Afghanistan in the first place, what motivates the Taliban, and how decisions made in both the Obama and Bush administrations have contributed to the current situation. We're going to do all that with the help of Hussein Haqqani, He served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011. Pakistan, of course, is right across the border from Afghanistan. And you'll remember, it was also the place where Osama bin Laden was ultimately discovered. Okay. So we're going to try and get the whole picture on Afghanistan. In 20 minutes, how do you, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can do it in 30 seconds. In 30 yeah. seconds? Yeah. Americans know nothing about Afghanistan. They've been trying to understand it, and they haven't succeeded. So it's time for them to come home. That was good. That was less than 30 seconds. That was really good. All right, so, uh, yeah, so... First of all, thank you for coming in. Pleasure being here. I, I'm actually curious, before we even start, where did you grow up? Karachi, Pakistan. Tell me a tiny bit about your childhood. Well, I mean, I wasn't uh, born to a very rich or prosperous family. Uh, my family were immigrants from India. We mm-hmm. had come to Pakistan at the partition of the subcontinent. They were housed in these British military barracks, which had been transformed into temporary housing for families of refugees. Did they speak uh, about partition growing up? Oh, yeah. Everybody spoke about partition. Was it a trauma carried or? Yeah. I mean, my father was somebody who never wanted partition and didn't want to move to Pakistan. My Mm -hmm. mother was somebody who believed in partition and Mm -hmm. wanted to move to Pakistan. So therefore, we had a lot of kitchen table uh, debates about where the partition should have been. Something I think that has stayed with me uh, at an intellectual level even to this day. How so? Uh, right now, people in Pakistan don't want to think of what might have been mm-hmm. if there had been no partition. And people in India always sort of think about the people who created Pakistan are the ones responsible for partition. From my own childhood debates, I understand that there was a far more complex situation at that time and that there could have been ways in which it could have been avoided. I'm curious how that affects how you perceive the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan and the Taliban. And one of the things that's remarkable about the Taliban is that over the last 18 years, the Taliban has hung on. And if if anything, they've gone stronger. Where does the relationship begin between Pakistan and and the Taliban? Well, first of all, one has to understand what the issue is on the part of Pakistan that makes it so interested in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Pakistan is people don't always understand, is a new country. Uh, There was no Pakistan in history. The name Pakistan is an acronym. 
that was contrived by students, Muslim students from the subcontinent at Cambridge University in the late 30s. So the very idea of Pakistan is no more than 80 years old and the country is no more than 70, 71 years old. Uh, that said, because Pakistan chose to be a Western ally in the Cold War, it got a lot of benefits from American and European support. Uh, Afghanistan, on the other hand, because it was a neighbor of the Soviet Union from inception, older country, just didn't get involved in the Cold War. And then, of course, American awareness of Afghanistan goes only as far back as the Soviet invasion of 1979. Mm -hmm. For Afghans, what is today Pakistan comprises a large tract of territory that was historic Afghanistan and that was taken by the British in 1893. And is there resentment? And more important than resentment is a feeling that uh, the Durand line, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan today, divided an ethnicity, the Pashtuns, Mm -hmm. divided uh, tribes, divided clans. So Pakistan and Afghanistan have always had a relatively open border. Uh, There are hundreds of points of crossing, etc. That was taken advantage of by the United States and everybody else who supported the Mujahideen against the Soviets. And the Mujahideen were Afghans who were essentially people who resented communist takeover of Afghanistan, came to Pakistan, got recruited, trained, etc. Pakistan had a different goal than America did and other countries did in the war against the Soviets. Everybody else was interested in the Soviets leaving Afghanistan. Pakistan was interested in ensuring that whatever succeeded the Soviet occupation was so beholden to Pakistan that they would never question the Durand line and the 1893 loss of territory. And so Pakistan ended up supporting some of the most hardline fundamentalist groups because they were closer to Pakistan's uh, military and intelligence services uh, than the more secular or pro-Soviet or for that matter, uh, less religiously stringent groups. When the Soviets left, civil war broke out in Afghanistan. Pakistan supported the hardliners. Situation went out of control. The U.S. withdrew from the region, took no interest in the civil war. Pakistan decided to support this group called the Taliban, which was basically those mujahideen who were not willing to listen to their leaders. And so Pakistan was present at the creation of the Taliban. The Taliban have almost always had a very strong relationship with Pakistan security services. Who else has ever supported the Taliban except them? And from Pakistan's point of view, who else has supported Pakistan's worldview on Afghanistan, that Afghans should actually consider Pakistan in religious terms as a Islamic country rather than as the country that deprives traditional Afghans of their historic homeland or part of their historic homeland. That is where the differences come. So the Taliban have consistently been supported from Pakistan. The reason why the Taliban are strong is because President Bush's government made a big mistake. The Bush administration defined their job in Afghanistan very narrowly. They thought that their job was just getting rid of al-Qaeda. Before you get to President Bush, and we're talking about George W., not Mm -hmm. H.W. Bush, Mm -hmm. take us first to 9-11. How did Pakistan view the attacks on 9-11? Well, first of all, we must understand that there's a difference between how Pakistan's security services view something and how the people of Pakistan Mm -hmm. view something. Uh, The people of Pakistan have 100 views, (laughs) but these Pakistani security services have only one objective, which Mm -hmm. is to try and 
be equal in power to India. That's the historic goal. So the way they saw 9-11 was that it disrupted their little plan. They had installed the Taliban in power in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen, the other groups had all fallen by the wayside. The Taliban were so beholden to Pakistan that now there was no question that any Pashtun in Afghanistan will ever question the border or even Pakistan's right to dictate to Afghanistan. That was all disrupted by 9-11 because now the Americans got involved. And so another superpower is... Well, not only that, not only that, it's Pakistan's ambitions have been thwarted. Mm-hmm. The, the Pakistani ambition of having a Afghanistan that is beholden completely to Pakistan because Afghanistan is landlocked, Pakistan is the only access to the sea, Pakistan is bigger, much stronger military, much more connected with the rest of the world. So Pakistan could dictate to Afghanistan. And now if America is going to come and install a new regime in Afghanistan, that regime will not be beholden to Pakistan, as has been the case. So therefore, all the Taliban leaders were evacuated. And we found out many years later in 2011, uh, when bin Laden was founded in Pakistan, that it wasn't just the Taliban leaders, even some Al-Qaeda leaders ended up in Pakistan. Where were you on 9-11? I was in Pakistan. I was, ironically, I was about to leave Islamabad for Karachi on a flight in which on both sides I had two former Pakistani intelligence chiefs sitting in coach class on a flight from Islamabad to Karachi. The flight got cancelled when the 9-11 news came. And so I had to stay the night in Islamabad before going home to Karachi. What was the reaction like in the airport that day? More important than the reaction of the general public, I'll tell you what the two intelligence chiefs thought. Yeah, And they both thought that the Americans had been taught a lesson. And so it was interesting uh, because I was, of course, one of those who thought that, no, this is going to become a lesson for uh, global terrorism. America will retaliate and will react. Pakistani public opinion has often been very anti-American. So half of Pakistan's population was probably anti-American. But there are also a lot of people uh, like myself who resented the jihadi extremists and terrorists. In fact, Within a couple of days of 9-11, I wrote an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times in which I made this argument that Pakistan may now have to choose friendship with the United States or continued support of the jihadis. Unfortunately, 18 years later, I have the feeling that they really never had to choose because the Americans allowed them the opportunity to carry on support for the jihadis while being America's allies. Let's go into that a little further, because Pakistan nominally was a U.S. ally as the U.S. enters into this conflict. But at the same time, they have their own interests in Afghanistan. Can you explain that difference? Well, so for one thing, Pakistan had a military dictatorship at the time. Mm -hmm. General Pervez Musharraf was in charge. And the American sort of old habit of trying to find, you know, you, you, you know what uh, FDR used to say about um, Somoza dictatorship in Nicaragua, that he's my, he's an SOB, but he's my SOB. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, Americans thought, okay, Musharraf, who was, by the way, at that time a pariah, and the Americans had thought that, A, he had toppled a civilian elected democratic government, B, he had been responsible for the war with India just a few months before his takeover, and see, Pakistan was not conforming to American expectations in relation to its nuclear program. So Pakistan was under sanctions before 9-11. And after 9-11, Musharraf turns around and says, OK, well, what do you need? What do you need? I'll help you. And the Americans say, fine, we found our SOB. So Musharraf helped the U.S. in finding 
several Al-Qaeda uh, figures. A lot of people who ended up in Guantanamo were found by Pakistani intelligence service. But he never dealt a final blow to the jihadi groups that Pakistan itself had created for influence in Afghanistan, that is the Afghan Taliban, and then these various jihadi groups that were waging war in uh, Indian-controlled parts of Kashmir and even in India. So soon after 9-11, there was an attack on India's parliament, which caused a lot of friction between India and Pakistan. And the U.S. decided to tilt in favor of Pakistan to try and tell India not to react and that the Americans will somehow bring stability. The Pakistani game continued well until 2006 before the U.S. reacted. Between uh, immediately after 9-11 and 2006, the American policy seemed to be to say, the Taliban are not our enemy, Al-Qaeda is. And Pakistan is helping us with Al-Qaeda. But by 2006, Al-Qaeda number twos and threes, uh, there weren't any left for Pakistan to arrest and hand over to the Americans. And lots of intelligence started coming of how the Taliban had regrouped in Pakistan and had now started attacking American troops in Afghanistan. So Pakistan was now seen as both being an American ally helping America in certain ways, but also helping America's enemies, the Taliban, attack Americans in Afghanistan. How is that support provided to the Taliban? Well, the Taliban were equipped, trained, and housed in Pakistan. And I think there's plenty of evidence of that. I mean, right now, the president of the United States is kind of set his goals as withdrawing from Afghanistan. So he doesn't want to pay attention to any of that. But if you remember, he himself pointed out uh, that uh, all evidence was that uh, the Taliban would not have been the force they became if they did not have a safe haven across the border in Pakistan. Go ahead to 2008. You become the ambassador to Washington. And at that point... What were the most challenging aspects of your job? What was the tension like between Pakistan and the U.S.? So let me back up a little. In yeah. 2002, I came to the United States, and I came here to work first at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and then to be a professor of international relations at Boston University. And the reason was that I had been a, a fervent critic of uh, General Musharraf and his dictatorship, so it became difficult for me to stay in Pakistan, and I came into a life of exile here. Musharraf, as you know, had massive public uprising against him in 2007 and 2008. New elections were held. The civilian government that was elected asked me to become ambassador. So, so you were already based here? So I was already in the United States. Huh. I literally moved from Boston to Washington, D.C. to become ambassador rather than moving from Islamabad to Washington, D.C. And how did that shift your life? I mean, had you liked being a civilian and just teaching? Yeah, actually, with hindsight, I probably would have been better off remaining a civilian because I found myself in the vortex of a lot of controversies after I became ambassador. Of course, those who criticized me would argue that, you know, the fact that I had lived in exile for a few years uh, made me predisposed to seeing things from an American eye, whereas I saw it as being a little bit more objective. I understood what the weaknesses in the Pakistani position were. If we were going to build a democracy in Pakistan, Pakistan could not be a democracy and be home to jihadi terrorists both at the same time. How did they entice you back then? I mean, it seems like you'd have a nice life in Boston. Teaching. Yeah, but uh, uh, the civilian leadership, I was very close to them. Benazir Bhutto was our, our leader. 
and she used to meet me regularly. I met her regularly. We talked about it. And so we were, the way I saw it, we had an opportunity with Musharraf gone, uh, the military being prepared to cede power to the civilians. Mm-hmm. We could actually build a viable modern democracy in Pakistan. And then Benazir Bhutto had been killed, as you know. And when she was killed, her husband, who became president, uh, had a kind of an emotional advantage in asking me, you know what, I know that you're going to give up a comfortable life as a professor in the U.S., but this is somewhere where you will be effective and useful, and why don't you become ambassador? And then on the American side, there were a lot of people who said to me, hey, you would be a good interlocutor to have. Uh, what so, was it like for you when Budo was killed, though? I mean, well, it, was a very, it was extremely traumatic. And I felt immense sense of responsibility uh, because uh, she had young children whom we knew very well as family and because she didn't also have to go back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, she could have said, I've been prime minister twice. I'm going to live comfortably abroad. She also went f- from a sense of duty. Where were you when she was killed? In uh, Boston. In Boston. And how did you hear about it? Somebody called me, actually. I was sleeping. It was early in the morning, Eastern time. The phone rang. I answered the phone. Oh, my wife had gone to Pakistan with mm-hmm. Benazir Bhutto. Uh, she ran for parliament and became a member of parliament. So somebody called me and said, turn on CNN. And I turned on CNN, and there the news was. Yeah. So I called my wife, who was crying and wailing. She was at the hospital where Benazir Bhutto had been brought after that fateful attack on her. And so that would partly drew you back in. That drew me back in. And secondly, look, if you're going to do something important and something historic, then you have to give up some comfort. And then in 2011, you're involved in something that came to be called Memogate. Memogate was a label that was invented in Pakistan for mm-hmm. something that was an utter and total fabrication. Um, After the whole bin Laden raid, a lot of questions were raised about Pakistan's conduct as to why Pakistan had bin Laden. And the Pakistani military and the intelligence services that didn't like my guts anyway because I had already written a book Mm -hmm. that was published a few years earlier titled Pakistan Between Mosque and Military in which I had pointed out that the reason why Pakistan has religious extremists is because the military actually cultivates them for regional political influence. Uh, So the military didn't and the intelligence services didn't like me. But after the bin Laden raid, they thought, ah, we need a scapegoat. We need somebody to blame for why the Americans were able to find bin Laden without us being able to find him first. They didn't want to answer the question, why was bin Laden there in the first place? Well, there are people who doubt that Pakistan didn't know. Oh, absolutely. I'm one of them. (laughs) So they decided that they needed a distraction. And in this environment, a Pakistani-American businessman uh, who lived in Monaco, if I'm not mistaken, came up with this allegation that I had asked him to deliver a memo on behalf of the civilian government to Admiral Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and that the uh, memo promised certain concessions to the U.S. if the U.S. helped the Pakistani civilians cut the military down to size. Now, the catch in all of this is that while there is nothing wrong with the civilian government asserting authority over the military, suggesting that a foreign country's military put pressure on the military of your own country to cut them down to size uh, was wrong. I had nothing to do with that memo. 
The editor of Pakistan Today was quoted in The Guardian as calling it a slow-moving coup. Yes, exactly. So it was essentially an attempt to weaken the civilian government by accusing it of seeking American military support against Pakistan's military. Now, in Pakistan, the military is respected and admired. It's ruled the country for more than half its life. And even those who don't admire it can't badmouth it, even though it's a very politicized institution. So it was an attempt to cut the civilians down to size. And eventually, I went back to try and answer the questions of the You military. went to Pakistan? I you? went to Pakistan to do that. I was told not to leave the country, so I was stuck there for about three months. But eventually they had to let me go because they hadn't charged me with anything. There were no criminal proceedings that I had to participate in. So how long could I just sit there waiting for... Where were uh, you during that time? So during that time, I was protected by the civilian uh, leadership of the country. First, I was in the president's residence, and when he became ill and had to travel abroad, the prime minister kept me in the prime minister's house. I was virtually under tension in the sense that I couldn't leave the premises, but I was physically protected against the military. It was a unique situation that the civilian government supported me in my position and my right to actually have all the legal protections that I was entitled to, and the military and the intelligence services joining with the hardest-line elements of Pakistan's media saying, oh, some treason has been committed, this man, you know, let's just hang him and have a trial later. But eventually I was allowed to leave the country and I haven't returned since. But in January, there was an arrest warrant issued for you. Oh, Pakistani courts issue what are known as political arrest warrants pretty frequently. And the international community has now figured that out. So these are sent around and... They tried to get Interpol Interpol involved. turns them down and foreign countries turn them down routinely because it's now become such a sad practice. It was done against Benazir Bhutto. It's been done against virtually every Pakistani political figure of any consequence. Do you live in fear? Mm, I don't think so. I am not easily terrified. So <laughs> that's one part. The other part is that um, one has to say what one has to say. I mean, what what's going to happen? Um, I don't think that any international court is ever going to honor any of these uh, allegations. These are primarily designed to keep the Pakistani population from taking some of my writings and my criticisms seriously. But you've lost your country as a result, or at least temporarily. Yeah, but I'm not the only one. I think the people who live there have also lost it. Do you still have family in Pakistan? I have extended family there. But your wife is here now? My wife and children are here. I want to circle us back to Afghanistan. President Trump has made it clear he wants out of Afghanistan. What's the end game? Well, I don't think President Trump has an end game. Mm -hmm. I think he wants out and he wants out. And uh, there are people who measure military intervention by years. And those who do that say, hey, we've been there 17 years, time to come out. My point is that military intervention should always be measured against goals. What did you go for and did you accomplish it or not? And if you did not, why not? It shouldn't be measured in time. Uh, In terms of what you went there for, you went there because the United States was attacked on 9-11. Afghanistan had become a safe haven for al-Qaeda and other Islamist extremist jihadi groups. The idea after that was to try and make sure that Afghanistan and its immediate environment doesn't become a safe haven for global terrorism. Where the U.S. went wrong was the Bush administration's mistake of completely trusting General Musharraf in ensuring 
that the jihadi groups are eliminated on the Pakistani side. So while Afghanistan was rebuilding, you ended up having the Taliban reorganize and become a nuisance for Afghanistan. Then President Obama made the huge mistake of the so-called surge in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban, but at the same time announced the date for the withdrawal as well. What that did was it helped the Taliban and the Pakistanis who supported them game how long America will be there. Uh, the Taliban had a maxim that uh, Mullah Omar, who was the founder of the Taliban, used to say that the Americans have watches, we have the time. And basically when President Obama announced that there will be a schedule for withdrawal tied to the surge, mm -hmm. all that did was told the Taliban to sit in their sort of, you know, safe havens and wait for the American withdrawal. When that withdrawal didn't come, the Taliban decided to increase the heat, which has now resulted in President Trump first saying, we'll stay as long as we need to, but now saying we are in a hurry to withdraw. So in, in every way you look at it, basically the U.S. has not really put up the fight that should have been put up to succeed. Has the U.S. lost? I don't think the U.S. has lost. I think the U.S. has allowed the others to be able to proclaim victory by not putting up a fight. Uh, nothing has ever been done to deal with the uh, constant back and forth of Taliban and their uh, supplies from the Pakistani side. Afghanistan's own government uh, has been allowed uh, to go in every which direction. The U.S. spent too much money on Afghanistan, which wasn't necessary. I'll just give you an example. Uh, when I was ambassador, I learned that there were several studies that were taking place here about the standards at which Afghan public schools were to be built. And I said to somebody in the U.S. government, how much do these studies cost? And they said, oh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars for somebody doing a study. And I said, and what are these studies about? You're trying to figure out whether schools in Afghanistan should be more like New Jersey schools or Maryland schools or something. Why don't you understand in Afghanistan, before the Soviets came, a decent school was a roof, a blackboard, some chalk, a teacher and some books. Why can't we do that? So when people here complain that, oh God, the U.S. has wasted and spent too much money in Afghanistan, I turn around to them and say, you didn't have to. You did that because that's the way you make your decisions. It's not the poor Afghans' fault. You could have done it all at a much lesser cost. And so what has happened now is that nobody is thinking about the original reason for going into Afghanistan. What if we come out, the government in Afghanistan is unable to fight the Taliban, the Taliban regain control of most, if not all, of Afghanistan, and the various global jihadi terrorist groups recongregate there, not because of any other reason, but because ideologically they and the Taliban have much more in common and will be welcomed much more easily than they would be in a country where the government really runs and extremists from another country are really not allowed to settle. And right now the U.S. has created a framework agreement with the Taliban, but the Afghan government has said it won't participate. Well, first of all, what is the framework agreement? The framework agreement is essentially uh, that the U.S. will withdraw. 
in return for a vague Taliban promise that they will not support international jihadi terrorist groups. But the Taliban themselves are an international jihadi terrorist group. They have attacked Americans. They have attacked the American embassy more than once. They have attacked Germans, French, British, Canadians, Australians. I can't understand how their promise that they will not allow al-Qaeda or, or ISIS to come back into Afghanistan uh, be considered worth the paper it's written on. So I really don't see there's a framework agreement. All I see is a promise for those who just really want out so that they can use it as a fig leaf for getting out. What is the legacy of the U.S.'s 17, 18 years in Afghanistan? Oh, there's a lot of positive legacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot more Afghan young women are going to school. The Taliban didn't allow that. The Taliban played football with human heads, if you remember. The Taliban were one of the most atrocious regimes in human history. And all of that is gone. Uh, and now the Taliban are themselves saying, oh, all of that was wrong. So that is definitely a positive legacy that Americans can be proud of. A government has been created in Afghanistan that with all its weaknesses and flaws, and by the way, which government doesn't have flaws? At the same time, there was always a concern that the U.S. cannot afford to antagonize Pakistan. Pakistan is a nuclear-armed country. Pakistan has been an American ally for several decades. It would complicate the situation if Pakistan was put under too much pressure. So in a way, basically, the failure of the U.S. in relation to Afghanistan has not been a failure of its actions in Afghanistan, but of its inaction in relation to a Taliban based in Pakistan. I'm curious if there's anything else that you want to offer our listeners that I haven't asked you. Well, I would just say that your listeners need to think about what is common between Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, countries where America went in, guns blazing, and kind of came out without a visible success. And I would say that the real reason is a failure to understand the regional dynamics of politics and an inadequate understanding of the culture or the politics of the country where you were going. When you intervene in another country, uh, you should know who your allies are. Uh, you should have a minimalist agenda of what you're going to change and what you're not going to change. And you should have a timeline in your own mind. In each of these cases, those requirements were not fulfilled. Uh, people that you supported uh, like Hamid Karzai, ended up turning on you and being critical of you. And yet, you don't feel that you have somebody in Afghanistan that you can trust as your ally. So those are the errors that I think are the big lesson of Afghanistan. And even now I would say that instead of announcing schedules for withdrawal, America should be clear of what it wants in Afghanistan, not when it wants it in Afghanistan. Thank you, Ambassador. Pleasure being here. Hussein Haqqani is a former Pakistani ambassador to the United States. We should mention he was one of foreign policy's top global thinkers back in 2013. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host. <laughs>